Whistleblower Report, exposing lies, deceptions, and all that has assaulted our way of life. We must take back our freedom and live as God designed in a free America that honors our Constitution and our Creator. Our experts in medicine, ministry, law, military, environment, and education empower us to grow together as a nation. For such a time as this, the Whistleblower Report offers truth and solutions. Welcome to the Whistleblower Report Inside Pharma segment with our co-host Headley Reese from the UK, who has been exposing the big black box that is big pharma and all of the lies and deceptions that have been foisted on the world about the safety and effectiveness of the experimental COVID shots, which are still to this day under experimental use authorization in the United States and most of the rest of the world. So today, our co-host, Hadley Reese, when many of you have been very diligent at following his work, both on Inside Pharma here on the Whistleblower Report each week, and his substack, also called Inside Pharma. And he has been exposing the deficiencies and the lack of safety oversight in the manufacturing and distribution processes. And he's often brought guests from the UK and other specialists in Europe to speak to these points. Today, he brings us his, a physician colleague, Dr. Philip McMillan, who is also in the UK and internal medicine hospital-based physician with a long career. And Headley, I'll let you tell our listeners more about Dr. McMillan and introduce him and talk about why you wanted our listeners to hear his perspective. Okay, thanks, Dr. Lee. It's a pleasure to be here again. I've been a little bit selfish about this because it's not easy to get hold of practicing physicians and get uh, honest answers and opinions, particularly when they come from people who, who are treating patients and fighting with COVID and various aspects of COVID. So I'm delighted that Dr. McMillan has accepted the inv invitation to, to speak here. Um, I'm, I won't say too much about him. He's got his own substack, which is very popular, which I'm going to ask him just to, uh, to, to, to mention. But what we want to do here today is just give you an insight from the UK where, you know, we have an NHS system uh, where healthcare is free at the point of, of use. And, and just to get a perspective from Dr. McMillan on um, the work he's been doing, particularly uh, through his substack. So Dr. McMillan, could you just tell us a bit about that? Yes, thank you very much, Hedley. Thank you very much, um, Lee. I, I appreciate you having me here. And um, yes, I do think it's important to have a clinical perspective. I like to think that I am objective in what I would be talking about. But um, yes, I've been sharing on Substack now for 
probably about um, two years almost. It was primarily because I anticipated that I'd get censored on um, on LinkedIn. And I had a big following there. And so I anticipated that and started to dually share my posts, both on Substack as well as on LinkedIn. The inevitable did happen because I found that there was a fear of dealing with the complex and difficult questions around COVID-19. And you would find that anything that challenged the narrative was considered to be misinformation. And I can even challenge now with regards to LinkedIn, the fact that almost everything that I said, if there was one problem, I was too far ahead of the science. And so therefore, what I said appeared to be misinformation. And that's similar to what I do with my Substack. I'm analyzing what I see, I'm reflecting on my research, and I'm trying to predict the future. So it always is looking forward, and therefore may say things that people don't see at the moment, because it's trying to be predictive, so that we have an opportunity to mitigate. Well, speaking as a physician, I think that's a very wise approach because that is how we are supposed to be managing patients is to we're, we're supposed to be looking at their clinical presentation, reading what we can in the research that's available and then applying it to look at potentially finding new ways to to mitigate problems. That's uh, very important concept, and too few people are doing that today, certainly here in the U.S. Yeah, Hedley, you, think... were, you were going to comment. Hmm. Go ahead, Headley. I, I was just, I'm really interested to understand what, what, what you have been uh, seeing. I saw one of your videos where you were talking about an embalmer, and um, uh, I, I forget exactly what it was, but it seemed to be evidence that you were examining and uh, examining and you were sharing with people. Yeah, so it, to understand where I'm coming from, um, when the pandemic started, this was early in February, and this was primarily because for about 12 years before I'd been doing dementia research. And I was focused on trying to understand primary pathophysiology. And so that's always my approach to any disease. So when COVID hit in March, well, February 2020, um, primarily we started to get the data coming out. I then started to look carefully at the data. And from a clinical perspective, there were just some abnormalities with the people who were affected. And that immediately clued me into something being unusual about the way that we had clinical presentations. And that's where I started. And so when I started to look at the research, the things that I remember standing out from one of the very first papers coming out of China was that there were no children that got severely affected. And 76% of that Chinese cohort had hypertension. And that made absolutely no sense because I I thought to myself, I could understand diabetes, but not hypertension. And so I knew then that there was something that would connect people who had hypertension and children not having severe disease. And that's where I started my research. And what I came up with was free ACE2 as being that differential, meaning that the entry receptor for the virus, which is ACE2, 
it uses it to get into cell. That's the primary enteroreceptor. It's just that when the virus gets into the bloodstream, there is an unusual thing that happens in certain cohorts of people. And that's instead of the ACE2 um, receptor being attached to the endothelial cell, the body uses a special enzyme to clip it and it becomes free ACE2. So in medicine, we tend to know about free ACE, which is with sarcoidosis, but very few people, including myself, had come across free ACE2. And it, it was a measure from a research point of view to parallel heart failure. So that's what they were using it for, to, to parallel the, the brain natriuretic peptide and to look at heart failure. And so it was paralleling it. So when I noticed that unusual feature, it took me some time knocking around ideas until I stumbled into the cause of the cytokine storm would make the most logical sense if there was an autoimmune response involving ACE2. And that's where our research started. That was in, in April 2020. And essentially, that's why I started talking on social media about COVID-19. I thought this was absolutely critical for us to understand if we are then thinking about therapeutics, if we're thinking about vaccines, if you don't grasp autoimmunity, you are going to walk down a rabbit hole. And this is exactly what has happened. And even now, the relevance of it is how you can predict what is going to happen next. That's what I'm trying to do. I think that's highly significant and it fits with what I was seeing clinically treating patients out patient in the early months of 2020, because we always needed to take into account the, the aspects of an immune system for our listeners, calling it an immune system out of control. And the site, what, what became known in the, in the public mind as the cytokine storm but that was also aggravated by the fact that in our country, people were told when they came to the ER short of breath, they were told to go back home. You're not sick enough to be admitted. So they never were treated early in this process that could have dampened down that response. Mm -hmm. Was, yes, that, was that what you saw in the UK or were people more likely to be admitted to hospital quickly? No, I mean, it, it, was, it was part of the issue is that you would only be admitted if you needed oxygen. And, um, and that was the point that was being, that was the approach is that we only were going for moderate to severe COVID-19. And um, it, it was reasonable from a practical point of view. There's no point admitting somebody who is feeling a little bit unwell. But even within the admission of patients who needed oxygen, there were very little therapeutic options available until the recovery trial, which then gave us some direction with regards to using dexamethasone. That's a whole different uh, conversation in itself as to what happened there. But uh, the point being is that when we look across the disease, and as I said to anybody, if you've come across any kind of autoimmune disease that involves the lungs, so a lung vasculitis from whatever cause, if that person is on oxygen, 
you have got to immune suppress them immediately with very high dose medication. And this was the reason why I was trying to shout and say, listen, if this is autoimmunity, what you need is not medium dose dexamethasone. You need high dose steroids immediately within 24 hours, just like what happens with antibiotics and sepsis. If you wait six hours or a day, the antibiotics don't work. If you wait two days with, with for immune suppression, it won't work either. And so it's that kind of issue that I was trying to see if I could highlight as being absolutely critical with regards to therapeutic approaches. And this is why the early treatment approaches, um, certainly even FLCCC, when they were recommending high-dose steroids as well, made perfect sense because it would dampen down the cytokine storm. Well, that's that's right. And what I found in the outpatient setting was, was that unlike previous viral illnesses, and now I was using a lot of hydroxychloroquine because I found that in our NIH literature, going back to um, published studies from Fauci's Journal of Virology, that were the studies were done in 2002 and 2003, and the first paper was published in 2005 about the potency of chloroquine and, sub, and hydroxychloroquine, the sister drug, against the SARS-CoV-1 virus. And it, it blocked the viral entry using the ACE2 receptor, and it blocked the viral, facilitated zinc um, transport into the cell and blocked replication. So I was actually using a lot of that, which I'd used for other as antiviral properties earlier, but, and it's also an immune modulating medicine. But what was interesting was that I always had to, almost always had to add high dose. We were using prednisone, higher dose prednisone in a prednisone burst to, for the exact same reasons you're talking about. Yeah, it, it, it's really, really, but I mean, to be frank with you, when you pull back, and this is something I oftentimes say, in another 30 to 40 years, when they look back at this period, and it becomes blatantly obvious that this was autoimmunity, they are going to be thinking to themselves, did you know, similar to what Dr. Shetty did in South Africa with high-dose steroids and antihistamines, you could have probably saved 99.8% of lives just by intervening very early. And it's interesting with hydroxychloroquine. Um, I don't know where you will play this that will be able to talk about this, but it is so sad that that drug got pulled into politics. And I remember when it was first discussed politically, and I thought this is a nightmare because suddenly the drug becomes polarized and then people want it not to work because of who has spoken about it. This drug is it, it acts at so many valuable levels. It's unbelievable. And actually, one of the most interesting things outside of the immune modulation, I mean, I think that that does help, but you would be better off with a a stronger immune modulator and immune suppression. But one of the very interesting things about HCQ is the link to Omicron. Now, a lot of people haven't clued in to the fact that the reason Omicron is still circulating 
primarily in highly vaccinated regions is because it uses a different entry mechanism than the original viruses, the alpha, the delta, the lambda. They all used TMPRSS when it bound to ACE and then it popped in. Omicron doesn't do that. It binds to ACE and then it gets taken into an endosome before it's then acidified and then releases the RNA. The reason it's important is because guess what works to inhibit the endosome? Hydroxychloroquine. That is the primary (laughs) modality of action. And so strangely, one of the best drugs that would work, even at population level now, if you're trying to suppress viral spread, is hydroxychloroquine. It will probably do it Well, it works in a different mechanism than, say, an ivermectin, but it is an incredibly valuable drug at this point. Well, it it absolutely is. Now, here's here's another perspective that the patients are never told by their physicians. And I know for a fact, because I was working with um, Senator Johnson and many others behind the scenes in the U.S., getting them the medical information to counter the narrative over here, we know for a fact who in the FDA blocked the use of hydroxychloroquine. And it wasn't, it wasn't connected with the fact that President Trump talked about the data showing its effectiveness. It had to do with the fact that it was a planned agenda here in the U.S. to inhibit early treatment and push people into the forced vaccination with the experimental shot that they knew was coming. That, that is well-documented on our end, and I've written extensively, done many interviews on that, and I've documented who the players were. But the point is that hydroxychloroquine was, had one of the best safety track records in the 65-year history that it was FDA-approved. In addition, it has been used as a medicine to treat diabetes, lower hemoglobin A1C, glucose, lipids for 40 years. And there are many published studies on that in the U.S. NIH publications. And it, colleagues in India were telling me that it was the second line diabetes drug in all of India. Well, who were some of the high risk patients who were getting the sickest with COVID and dying, but people with diabetes. So you had that mechanism. It also, there there are studies ongoing in the US NIH with hydroxychloroquine as an adjunct in the treatment of multiple cancers. I think I found articles in 2020 about 16 different cancers because it reduces the inflammatory proteins that help to suppress, uh, help to spread, for example, prostate and breast cancer in particular. But I also had patients with non-small cell lung cancer who I found clinical trials at NIH using hydroxychloroquine for that. So here the, the political narrative in the U.S. pushing towards the vaccine were denying patients access to a drug that our own NIH already knew was effective with autoimmune disorders, rheumatoid and lupus, it was approved for, used in cancer, used in diabetes. And we had early data, Dr. McCullough published one of the first studies looking at the effectiveness of hydroxychloroquine in 
COVID early treatment in combination with the things you were talking about. So, and now you're bringing up an entirely different mechanism that no one's been told. Mm. Yeah, that, that that is a very, very important point now, because sometimes when we're looking backwards at what was wrong, that's one part. But we need to stop the circulation of this virus because it's putting everyone at risk, both the vaccinated and the unvaccinated. And so it's about how do we do that effectively? And hydroxychloroquine has got to be part of that mix. I wanted to make a point, though. I, I, I can't speak about the information suppression in the US and so on. All I know is that when Oxford did one of the most remarkable trials, the recovery trial, and they found that dexamethasone, six milligrams, worked to reduce mortality by about 30%. It was immediately taken up across the world. It was within 24 hours. It was incredible the impact that it had on treatment strategies across the world. But guess what? They didn't go and ask the next question. Did we get the formulation right? Did we get the dose right? It was the next obvious question. Should we be using higher doses? Should we be using prednisone, hydrocortisone, methylprednisone? That was the obvious question to ask, and it was not asked. Now, there are only three reasons. One, they didn't think about it. Now, I cannot imagine that these guys with this kind of expertise would not have thought about it. Two, they didn't care. I can't believe that these guys would be negligent either. And the only other third reason is that they were told not to do it for whatever reason. And that could fit into the question. I've made a a presentation about what I call the steroid conspiracy because this was huge. High dose steroids, in my view, at that time would have completely crashed mortality. They have done the high-dose steroid research now, but this is two years late when people have 50% vaccinated. It was just, in my view, a complete mess, and they said it didn't work. And I think that was done just to cover the fact that they should have done it in August of 2020, immediately after they got the information from the low-dose. That's the bit that I think will damage the Oxford work because it was such an important piece of the research puzzle, and they just didn't take the obvious next step. Well, we saw that here too, Dr. McMillan. And in the the U.S., it was clear that papers that my own colleagues were, and I was part of a group on some of them, that we submitted for publication were censored. So there's no question in our mind that in the United States, there was major censorship of the importance of high-dose steroids. And in fact, I'm personally familiar with doctors who were threatened with loss of their license in hospitals who pushed using high-dose steroids. And we look at what happened to Dr. Paul Merrick. He's on our advisory council. He was fired by my own medical school. I'm outraged at that. In fact, I took them out of my um, bequest when I die because they fired one of the leading people in the world 
in pulmonary medicine who innovated treatment for COVID patients and they fired him for using it. So I know for a fact that we had massive censorship and attacks on physicians who were bringing out exactly the points you were talking about. The doses of steroids they were using, if they used them, were too little, too late. Absolutely. Yes, that, those are really, really important points. And I don't like to be the apologist. Um, and sometimes I have to pull back. And rather than thinking that people are necessarily doing things for, for nefarious reasons, I'm just assuming that maybe they genuinely thought that, you know what, this vaccine is going to be tremendous. This vaccine is going to be the best thing that ever happened. And we cannot afford to let some early simple drugs get in the way of that progress. And so maybe let's just push it down the line and then get this out there and then everybody will be happy and the pandemic will be over. They clearly didn't do their homework. And whatever the reasons, the impact that this is going to have going forward, and I warn people that COVID-19 is going to be an issue for the next 20 years in every single aspect of medicine. And we can't undo what has been done. But we have to push to make changes for the future. And I'm sorry, from all that I had to deal with here with the care of patients, I cannot be as charitable as you are. We have never, I've been in medicine for 40 years. We have never failed to treat patients with the tools we had at hand to the best of our ability at the time and not wait until some projected treatment down the road. We have always done the best we could using clinical judgment what data we had, and trying to help that patient in that moment. And that is the oath that physicians took, and that was violated, certainly massively in the United States. And I can't speak to the UK, but I can definitely speak to what was going on here because I was very involved in the trenches this whole time. And America and the world listening it's critical that you listen to what Dr. McMillan is saying and what I'm sharing from the U.S. perspective, because the treatments are available and you need to understand so that you can advocate with your doctors for the very options that we're talking about if you get sick. Viral illnesses are ubiquitous. They've been part of medicine for our whole career, and now we have one that requires some unique approaches. That's clinical medicine. That's what medicine should be all about. And if you have more questions, check our website, www.truthforhealth.org, where we have lots of resources for early home treatment of COVID, treatment of vaccine injury, fact sheets on things you can do to stay healthy, sign up for our email alerts, listen to our whistleblower reports, and donate to support all of our work to bring you the truth and help you have solutions. We'll be right back after the break. 
Welcome back to the second half of the Whistleblower Report Inside Pharma with my co-host, Hedley Reese, who has been a career expert in pharmaceutical drug distribution, manufacturing practices, safety oversight, and he has been working tirelessly to help expose the truth behind the black box of big pharma that the public doesn't know. And he has invited a guest physician from the UK, Dr. Philip McMillan, who has been discussing very critical research and data and clinical connections to the SARS-CoV-2 illness and some of the differences with the variants that have emerged. So Headley, what, what comments or questions do you want to encourage Dr. McMillan to share with our audience? I, granted, it's primarily an American audience, but we do reach around the world and we want people to understand the similar perspectives from, from across the ocean. Yeah, well, this has been a delight for me, Dr. Lee, because to listen to two skilled, gifted physicians openly uh, talking about their experiences and changes, exchanging ideas, you know, that's what it's all about. That's what we need. And that's why I'm so glad to listen to this conversation. Um, some of it I haven't quite understood, but I think I've got the gist of it. What I would say, though, is that I was involved in the early days with ivermectin, with um, looking at a source for ivermectin because people were buying it from the Philippines, from all over the world. What we have to be careful of, if people start to look at alternative treatments, the drugs must be manufactured to the right level of quality. And very often you buy something, there's a history of people buying products over the um, internet, They've not been properly manufactured to good distribution practice, and people have been severely injured. So what I would like to point out is that suddenly, particularly with COVID, if people start looking for some of these uh, treatments that work, that you know, you know work, they must still go through their physician to get their uh, uh, prescriptions filled and to get proper treatment. So... Um, I think I'll leave it there, and I'll continue listening to this wonderful conversation. Uh, well, you actually, mind... you make a good point, um, and I have patients who bought, uh, not patients of mine, but people who have reported to me that they were buying their own ivermectin from these overseas sources, and, and I shuddered at that for the very reasons that you're talking about, because we know that there have been FDA warnings about manufacturing standards in India and China for many years. And not a number of the generic manufacturers have, have had recalls of medicines, particularly in the uh, antihypertensive group that we have been dealing with in the U.S. I don't know whether that's affected you in the U.K., Dr. McMillan, but I emphasize what you're saying, Headley. I encourage people do not buy prescription medicines over the internet on your own. If someone's selling it to you without a physician prescription, that raises a huge red flag in my mind about the reliability and safety of the source of that product. I, can I make a, a point on this ivermectin? 
I, I remember when ivermectin was first being discussed and um, I never really spoke too much about it because I, I couldn't quite understand how it was working. So I was very observant until I realized some of the points about the immune modulation of the drug. And when I recognized that, I thought, ah, that makes sense. Because as far as I was concerned, everything fit under the um, umbrella of autoimmunity. Now, here's an interesting thing that I came across recently. There was some very good work that was done where it was published in Cell and they took um, a mucosal cell line and they infected it with the virus. And then they observed to see what would happen. And what they noticed that the virus did is that because there's usually a layer of mucus in the nose and so on, the virus would then bind to the cells that have cilia. These are like these, um, I guess you could think of it, the grass on top of it, uh, of the cell that sweeps things along. It would bind there, and then it would use that to go inside the cell. Now, here's where it gets interesting. What it would then do, the virus, when it unpacks its machinery and it produces its proteins to block interferon, one of the things that it stimulated was PAC-1. And PAC-1 is an enzyme that increases the growth of the cilia or microvilli on the, um, on the surface of the cell. So then you would find that these cells that it had infected create these tree-like structures on the surface for which the virus can then spread and continue to spread, which is why it's so effective at spreading. So once you understand that, any drug that inhibits PAC-1 is going to significantly slow down the ability of the virus to spread. And of course, one of the main drugs was ivermectin. Now, the reason I highlight that is because I've always questioned that I don't want to ever have one drug in my arsenal. If somebody's allergic to it, what do you do? And this is why a mechanism is so important. Once you understand the PAC-1, you can then search for all the other things that can work similarly. And guess one of the other things that works effectively just as well, vitamin D. And so suddenly, even if someone doesn't have access to ivermectin, if they use sufficient doses of vitamin D, they are likely to inhibit this PAC-1 and therefore reduce the spread of the virus, allowing their immune system to kick in. Nothing is ever perfect, but I mean, it doesn't have some of the extra modulating actions of ivermectin or even hydroxychloroquine. But the point is, is that once you understand mechanisms, you can then target and overlap different strategies to make them work. You know, Dr. McMillan, you're you're talking about important clinical medicine principles that we've always used, and patients don't understand that because of all the advertising, and again, I can speak to all the direct-to-consumer advertising in the U.S., where individual drugs are hyped on TV, direct-to-consumers in ads on TV shows. Well, your point about not ever wanting to have an armamentarium with one drug 
is critically important for multiple reasons. People have allergies to medicines. People have individual differences. Their drug interactions with other things they may be taking. We, we have always been, at least in my career, we've always been taught to focus on tailoring the approaches to the individual and having multiple options to use. So multiple tools in our toolkit. Hmm. And that is such an important principle, but certainly here in the U.S., there is so much that's driven by insurance protocols or hospital executives directing protocols that are a one-size-fits-all. And doctors are told, if you don't use this protocol, if you do anything different, you risk being fired. But this is unheard of in my, over my years in medicine. And, I'm, and you're saying the same thing. We need to have a variety of approaches. Yeah, and it, it's the problem is is that um, when you get shoehorned into one approach, you know, I think um, not targeting the drug companies, but one of the 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 drugs that's being promoted, the SGLT two um, drugs for to type two diabetes, they're the new miracle drugs. They help not only with diabetes, they help with heart failure and mortality. And I remember looking at it and thinking, that doesn't make any sense. This this just works on this particular thing. Why would that be? So then when you think about it and you realize that, oh, so this drug will bind to the SGLT2 transporter in the kidney so that it doesn't absorb glucose as effectively. So then what happens is the glucose passing out then pulls water with it and it acts like a diuretic. And so in effect, the heart failure protection is actually the diuresis. So then you think to yourself, well, actually, I could get the same benefit by combining a thiazide or a loop diuretic with another anti-diabetic drug. So it's not against the drug. I'm just saying is that if you had a situation where a patient can't take it or it's too expensive, you can get the same outcomes by combining different drugs. And that's what I mean in terms of having tools in your toolbox when you understand mechanisms of action so that you get the best outcome for an individual patient. Exactly right. Understanding the mechanism. And, you know, that's how we were taught to think when I was in medical school and over the years of training and, and further education since then. But I don't see that that is the way physicians, medical students and physicians are taught to think now? It's, it's very difficult now, I think. Um, in truth, thinking, um, and I think that I, I've looked back at this and I've tried to understand this transition in medicine, where we have shifted from expert-based medicine to um, evidence-based medicine. And on the surface of it, it may seem to be good. But when you actually go back to the Cochrane, who was the, the person who was probably the pioneer with evidence-based medicine, all he was saying is that if you had a patient with hypertension or patients with COPD, you can't have everybody doing something different. There's got to be something that works more consistently. And so therefore, let's develop protocols and guidelines to help people and clinicians to understand that. 
That was the principle. However, I think this then got taken on by the pharmaceutical industry because suddenly they realized, well, we have control of the research. And so therefore, if we do the research, we have the evidence. And suddenly, because clinicians don't do the research, they have to go with the evidence. And so you then had a system that became so heavily weighted towards evidence-based medicine that it killed expertise and thinking, and everything was now about a protocol. The only people that benefits is the pharmaceutical industry. It doesn't benefit the patient. It doesn't benefit the clinicians who no longer need to think. Go ahead, Headley. Can I just say that's a perfect point because I go back to the days of penicillin, insulin with Bantin, um, the days when physicians were at the heart of drug development. So they were the ones who would see uh, chance outcomes or particular difference and they'd hit on that. And then the, the therapy would have, as I say, the physician at the center of it. But then we had patented molecules so that uh, molecular modelers took over the whole drug development. And we now have an industry that's dominated by research scientists, discovery scientists, who have never been near a patient in terms of treatment in their lives. So, and they are the ones creating the evidence and they are the ones obviously selling the, 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 the drugs. So, I've been saying for many years now that we have to go back to the days of physicians. You know, Fleming, it's, it's been documented that Fleming actually made the accidental finding for penicillin, but he needed Oxford University to actually isolate the, the active ingredient. And it took him 11 years to find a, 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 an organization to do that. And the, 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 the patented manufacturing process was devised by the U.S. Department of Agriculture, a gentleman there called um, Andrew J. Moyer, and he patented it. And, and the, in those days, it was the process that was patented, not a molecule. It's ridiculous to patent a molecule, isn't it? You know, oh, this is going to cure A, B and C. Well, we can't even make it. So how do we know it's going to, you know, and then... Ten years later, we realized that we couldn't make it and the trial fails. So, uh, you know, so what you're saying there, and I'm sort of fully aligned with what you're both saying in terms of what happened to the physician when it came to developing therapies for their patients. Yeah, and I think that at the moment that this is what brought us into the COVID crisis, the kind of thinking, protocol-based medicine, the inability to innovate and to move quickly was the worst situation to happen in the context of a pandemic. Medicine was too immobile. It wasn't innovative enough. It was too led by the pharmaceutical industry. And there were too many other benefits that needed to be covered that would limit physicians from trying to find solutions. And I think that the pandemic has exposed the reality and the world is now seeing it. The emperor has no clothes. We now need to step back and demonstrate as clinicians that we have the patients at heart and work to find genuine solutions for them that bring benefit to both sides so that pharma can still make money 
but it doesn't mean it's at the expense of the patient. That's beautifully said, and that is absolutely the hallmark of what medicine should be. And we do urgently need to get back to that foundation. I, I agree with everything you said about this shift in medicine, because I've seen it over my career. When, when I was in medical school, which was 1975 to 1978, I was taught by some of the best physician scientists. They were clinicians. They honored the, the oath to the patient, but they had a scientific inquisitive mind to look at patterns and mechanisms and understand how do we apply the basic science to the clinical needs of the patient. And, and I really, I, I just am extraordinarily grateful for that time frame because that really was the last generation of physicians who came out of the old school doc that didn't have a lot of diagnostic tests, didn't have a lot of imaging studies, and had to use physical diagnosis and look at the science to try and explain what was happening. And now what we see is certainly, again, I, I see it here in the U.S., that doctors rely on lab tests that are directed by insurance companies or the hospital CEO, who's not a physician. They rely on imaging studies. Patients are not physically examined in the way that they used to be. And they don't even teach physical diagnosis in the way it was taught in the 70s and 80s and even into some of the years of the 90s. And this shift has gone from expert-based medicine, as you said it, to evidence-based medicine, but they're ignoring the evidence of the patient. I mean, they really are ignoring it. I can't tell you how many thousands of patients have said to me, I told my doctor I was allergic to this, or I told my doctor that I tried this in the past and it didn't work, or I told my doctor that this is what was happening to me, and they've just ignored it. It's they're yeah. following a protocol, exactly as you said. And fundamentally, going back to the days of Hippocrates, medicine was based upon, and Sir William Osler, who founded Johns Hopkins, one of my alma maters, <laughs> it was based on listening to the patient, taking a history, and then putting together the science and the medicine, exactly as you were saying. Yes, and I, th I think that an important point now needs to be made. Um, and I think the point is this. With what we have in front of us, so beyond the COVID pandemic, circulating virus, probably triggering autoimmunity, vaccines probably triggering autoimmunity, the combination of the two coming together, that layer on top of complex disease presentation cannot be solved with a protocol. Exactly so right. We are now in that mm. phase where there is no protocol. And now it is forcing medicine 
to go back to the roots. Because I tell you what, anybody who's come across long COVID or a vaccine injured person will realize that these are some complex patients and there is no simple solution. You have to go from multiple angles to understand the patient, to learn what can work, what can't work. That is going to force medicine to go back to its roots because there is no other option and the patients will not accept being sick for a lifetime. That agreed very much. That is very well said. And one of the problems that I see here, and I don't know whether this is happening in the UK, you and Headley can speak to it, is that there've been a lot of people jumping on the bandwagon of long COVID suggesting one nutraceutical product or this, this, this approach um, as a one-shot approach or one drug. And it goes back to a point you made earlier in the program. There is not one drug, one vitamin, one supplement, one proprietary product that is going to fix the complexity of damage that we're seeing in these patients. Mm, Absolutely. And I can tell you because part of of my research is is um, is to do with long COVID, and I'm doing it because I, I think to myself it is extremely hard work. But I'm thinking to myself, if I don't do it, you know, who is going to do it? And um, the the point is, when I look at this, this is probably going to be one of the most complex diseases that we're going to have to face over the next 15 to 20 years. Patients need to understand this is not easy because you cannot solve long COVID until you've solved ME-CFS and fibromyalgia. If you don't know what the primary pathophysiology is with those diseases, there is no way we are going to find a solution for long COVID. So all of the work that should have been done for 20 or 30 years with post-viral illnesses needs to be done now. And there is no shortcut. And when we look at this kind of disease and when we look at the complexity that it brings with it, there, there is no easy way to do this. We are just going to have to do the hard graft of getting back to research, listening to patients, trying to understand symptoms and tie the whole thing together. There's a lot of work ahead. There really is. And then we come back to Headley's point that he's been making all day in and day out for years about the importance of adhering to good manufacturing practices, proper distribution oversight. And Headley, you have some thoughts on that as we close out today's program. Again, the warnings you've been making. Yeah, what most people don't realize is that the big pharma companies have outsourced everything. Every physical activity is done by other companies. The frozen vaccines were not finished, so we had People in the vaccination centers not trained, no standard operating procedures, no instructions, no skills in what you'd expect in in manufacture and uh, and distribution. And they were actually 
converting the part-finished vaccines into the finished product, no quality control on those vaccines before they were injected into patients. And the point, and I've been making this point for a long, long time because I was in the industry when it was vertically integrated, where these companies were huge companies. They, owed, they employed the people, they owned the assets, the manufacturing assets. Everything was done inside one company. Over 40 years, we now have tiny companies like BioNTech and Moderna, who basically, they employ no more than your local supermarket. They are applying for conditional authorization and emerging authorization to market drugs, and they're being approved. So people don't realize how completely disconnected the whole supply chain is because it is a black box. And, you know, it's almost too ridiculous for people to comprehend the extent to which assets have just been passed aside. So at the moment, these big pharma companies cannot develop drugs anymore without it being done by the people they fired and by the facilities that they sold off 40 years ago. So that's uh, an important point as well, I think. Uh, and that's when physicians started to be elbowed out of the, the, the patient relationship. Um, once, you know, the, the discovery research was the, was the big thing. Dr. McMillan, thank you, Headley. Your closing comments in the time we have left. Well, I do appreciate you having uh, me here with you. Fascinating to discuss the medical side, listening to the, the pharmaceutical distribution side, and just getting the opportunity to share some of my thoughts about research and where I think we're going to be going in the near future for and beyond this pandemic. There is still a lot of work that we need to do to mitigate and help patients and prevent death from occurring and illness. So a lot of work ahead of us. You're right. And I'm honored to be in this uh, field with you and bring you back to share more of your wisdom and insights and your very meaningful focus on the patients as people rather than the pharmaceutical focus on profits over people and protocols over people. So you're a, an ideal guest for our whistleblower report as we work to bring the truth to people and help them understand how to be more empowered consumers of medical care and how to be more involved in taking charge of their health. Our Faith Over Fear seminars every Tuesday night all through the coming months will focus on health and resilience steps that you can take and how to be a better advocate for yourself in a healthcare system that focuses on protocols over people. So thank you for joining us, Dr. McMillan. We definitely would like to have you back. And I'd love to have you give a program on some of your research and some of these connections that you've been making through the pandemic for our Faith Over Fear. Um, we'll, we may have to record it because we do it at eight o'clock Eastern time, which is the middle of the night over in the UK. But I, I really have enjoyed having you as a guest on the show and all of the 
uh, clinical wisdom and research insights that you brought to us. Hedley, thank you for your guest invitation today for bringing Dr. McMillan on. And we'll be back next week with more Inside Pharma, opening the big black box and helping you understand what's really going on. This is Dr. Lee for America with the Whistleblower Report. Check out our website, www.truthforhealth.org. Sign up for our emails and join our crusade. We are silent no more. 